The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. Corporate sponsors may from time to time be the subject of buy and or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. However, as host of Turning Hard Times into Good Times, Jay Taylor retains the right to provide objective opinions on behalf of subscribers and to his listeners audience regardless of sponsorship. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the editor of Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks newsletter. That's a weekly and a monthly newsletter. And you can learn more about that uh, letter and uh, the other services that we provide by going to miningstocks.com. That's M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S dot com. And you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426. That's 718-457-1426 to sign up for my letter, Roger Wiegand's letter, or Chen Lin's letter. Now, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, and I also want to thank our corporate sponsors, namely Coral Gold, Hawthorne Gold, Palangio Exploration, Metanor Resources, and Sand Gold for their sponsorships because they really make this, uh, this program financially uh, possible to bring to you. We have had a very good year so far this year in this bounce-back year. I really believe we're uh, really bouncing back from the major decline we took last year in the fall, and I don't expect this to last, so enjoy the good times while they're here. We're up about 42% so far this year in our model portfolio. Uh, Our portfolio is led by the uranium stocks, which were beaten down so badly the previous year. uh, They're up 147%, but many of those are still underwater from when we first recommended them. But we're having a good year this year. Oil and gas is up 63%. Junior exploration stocks are up 73%. The producers are lagging a little bit. Uh, they're up 34% on average. And bringing down our model portfolio average are the hedges like the Prudent Bear Fund and the RIDEX Inverse Fund. The RIDEX is a, a hedge against uh, rising interest rates, the Bear Fund against a rising stock market. And gold and silver are up only 5.66% on the year. That is collectively um, the, two, the two metals combined. Well, we mentioned just a moment ago that our producers are up only uh, 34%. That's our producing gold mining companies. But one stock that has helped to pull this average up significantly is Sand Gold. 
That's a new gold producer in Canada's Manitoba province. Sand gold has an exciting new high-grade discovery that has helped, as I say, pull our averages up. It's up 162% this year. That's in U.S. dollars. It's, it's gained 162% this year. So we wonder, is it too late to make money in sand gold? And in an effort to try to answer that question, we are going to be talking in just a minute or two here to the company's president, Dale Ginn. Um, but before, and then later after that, in our second and third segments, we're going to be talking to independent economist John Williams. He's the editor of Shadow Government Statistics, and John will help us understand how government, how our government, the U.S. government, fudges economic statistics to con the public really into a behavior that that is more beneficial to Wall Street and to Washington than to Main Street. This week, Chen Lin will not be with us. He's up near the Arctic Circle looking, uh, checking out a gold mining possibility that he may be bringing to you and we may be telling you about in our newsletter as well. We shall see what Chen has to say upon his return. In the last segment this week, we will be talking to Roger Wiegand, uh, and Roger will help me wrap up uh, this, uh, this segment, uh, this, this show this week. So let's turn now to Dale Ginn. He's the president of Sandgold. Uh, Dale is a geologist with over 20 years of experience in geology. Uh, geological and mine management in gold and base metals in North America. Dale uh, previously worked at Hudson Bay Mining, uh, Gold Corp, Grangus, and Westman. He was general manager of Harmony Gold uh, Canada prior to joining uh, to, prior to joining Sandgold. Mr. Ginn has been instrumental in the initiation and startup of the operation of Rice Lake, and I must say I was up there uh, in the summer of, of 07, and it is quite an operation up there. Uh, he is um, chairman of the Disclosure Committee and is a member of the Nomination Committee of that company as well. Dale, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. Glad to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I, I, you know, I never forget that experience going down a mile, a mile under the Earth's surface uh, to uh, to visit your mining operation. And there's nothing like getting actually getting on the ground or under the ground, I should say, to see how things really are to have a good sense of of the difficulty of mining gold mining or any kind of mining is really difficult business it's a it's a it's a high risk high return business but when you get it right you can make a lot of money well that that's correct and uh, you know the nature of the business means there's really very few um, experienced operators and uh, frankly that's that's the way that's why we like being in this business is that uh, it's interesting and challenging and there's not a crowded space well, that's right. If everybody could get into it and do it easily, they would, you know, you wouldn't have the upside potential, and that's it's exactly right. Now, you've had some really, some very, very good assays coming out of a high-grade discovery called the Hinge Deposit, and we want to talk about that in a few minutes. You also had just more recently some, uh, I guess this morning actually, you released some assays at uh, well, 44 grams over 5.9 meters, which is a darn good intersection. That comes out to like 1.4 ounces per ton for those of us not used to thinking in the metric system. So we're looking at something like $1,300 rock there. And uh, just a week or so ago, you were talking about 60 grams uh, at the hinge on um, over a good two-meter intersection, something like that. So these are really great great assays, Dale. I want to get to those. But uh, first of all, I'd just like to ask you about your current operations there now. What is your milling capacity, and how much material are you really running through the mill right now? Well, our, our um, rated capacity is about 1,200 tons per day, and uh, our plan has always been to feed or to get to that capacity through 
uh, many deposits or multiple deposits feeding uh, feeding the milk. Mm-hmm. Um, when, whereas in in the past, it's always been uh, fed by um, you know the deeper Rice Lake mine and um, as a single operation. Right, and that sort of puts some restrictions on how much ore you can pull. Is that right? Well, it does because your bottleneck then becomes the mine itself and not the mill. And so we've removed that bottleneck by uh, finding um, other deposits that, that would feed the mill. And that's been our uh, philosophy, really, is just uh, the removal of, of bottlenecks. And we're getting to the point now through our discoveries that, you know, the mill may be the next bottleneck, and we already have a plan in place that, you know, where, where we can uh, increase the uh, capacity of the mill itself. Well, what did you say the capacity is of the mill now? Currently, it's 1,200 tons per day. And you can boost that to what? We, we feel we can get it to about um, 1,800 per day uh, with basically some crusher changes. We're not talking about a huge capital item. We're talking about maybe $2 million. Hmm. Well, that would be a big help, wouldn't it? Uh, then if you've got... So you're at the point now, you're mining from two different from two different mines at the moment? That's correct. We're... One very deep and one not so deep, I think. That's right, yes. It's, uh, you know, the Rice Lake mine, uh, which is the deep mine that's operating between 4,000 and 5,000 feet deep. Mm-hmm. And it's a shaft access mine that really it's a classic Canadian gold mine that's been been around in operation since the 1930s. Wow. that's And, you know, next to it, of course, is uh, our hinge deposit, which is one mile away, and that... That's brand new. We found it just a year and a half ago, and it's uh, just beginning operations now. Well, that's really exciting because those are some really, really high-grade numbers coming out of there, aren't they? What do you expect to uh, – what sort of average grades do you anticipate? Or, or maybe it's too early to say yet, uh, but what kind of grades, let's say conservatively, might investors expect you to pull out of, uh, out of the hinge deposits? And you, and, you, and you have other parallel zones as well, but what – sort of average grades might you be able to pull, and then what kind of blended grades might you be putting through the mill? Because, as you say, you're going to pull from different uh, different mines. That's correct. I mean, um, we just completed, um, I guess it was uh, end of the second quarter, so it would have been in, in July, basically, that we completed our bulk sample of the hinge zone, and that basically came up with an average of... Uh, uh, about 0.53 ounces per ton. Mm-hmm. That's um, with a with a stoping average, which is more like it's the the actual mining of about 0.6 ounces per ton. So, yeah. So there, mm-hmm. you know, these are um, are grades that are at least twice to two to three times the uh, the uh, grades that we've been mining in the rice lake mine. So what, Dale? Let me ask. You, I don't know if, if this is something that that you know yet or not. But what sort of portion of the mill feed do you expect might come from the hinge and from some of those higher grades as opposed to some of the lower grades at depth? Well, initially we'd planned really only about a 250 ton per day mine from the hinge, but it's looking increasingly like it's going to contribute more than that. Um, is that because you're able to mine it, or because the grades are so good, or a combination of both? Well, it's it's um, it's got you know very good geometry. Mm-hmm. It's close to surface. Uh, we've established the access, so it's very it's actually quite efficient mining, mm-hmm. and so we think we 
we're looking at more like uh, between a four and five hundred ton a day operation at at those high grades, which would really increase your average grade then. Quite to the actually, yes. Like um, we're looking at about a quarter ounce per ton mine uh, in, with the Rice Lake mine. Yeah, the existing mine, and then you're looking at somewhere near a, a 0.5 ounce per ton operation at the hinge. Mm-hmm. So all in all, you're looking at a, a blended feed of uh, 0.3 to 0.4 ounces per ton. Now, here's the question I have for you now. We only have about a minute left, Dale. Um, you you lost about $0.08 cents a share this uh, for the first six months of this year. When do you expect to turn profitable and cash flow positive? Well, we're actually... Uh, we believe we'll be awfully close here in the third quarter. To cash flow positive? To cash flow positive, yeah. Yeah. And is that with mining some of the hinge, the higher grade stuff? Yeah, that would include, you know, some of the hinge at about a 200 ton a day um, average and then yeah. combination with the Rice Lake mine. Well, uh, all I can say is those those numbers keep coming out. We're looking, what do you expect your, your average cost then might be? Let's give me give me a range, if you could, uh, for your average cost per ounce, and how many ounces do you expect that you can produce ultimately? Well, we're looking at the hinge alone is under $200 Canadian mm-hmm. an ounce to produce. The overall, given that the Rice Lake mine is deeper and more expensive, uh, yeah. we're looking at about $350 now it's at steady state, and uh, we think we'll we'll produce between fifty and uh, sixty thousand ounces this year, and then we're looking at over a hundred thousand ounces next year, and moving on up to close to two hundred thousand ounces a year. That sounds great, Dale. You have some real growth prospects. I know lots of exploration potential there. I'd love to talk to you some more about this. Maybe we'll have to do it another time. And we'll be keeping our our listeners abreast of what you're doing here as a sponsor of this show. We want them to be aware. Of your uh, of the excellent prospects. Thank you very much, Dale, for for being with us, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest this week, John Williams, who will give us some idea about how the government is fudging the numbers and and what you really have to be uh, looking out for when you make your investments accordingly. We'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. 
He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. When you load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm here with my special guest this week, independent economist John Williams, and I want to underscore the word independent. John is not owned by Wall Street. He's not owned by these talking heads, the, uh, uh, these major Wall Street firms that have their talking heads propagandizing to you on CNBC and Bloomberg and elsewhere. John is really a, an intellect, uh, an independent person who has written uh, w- what he believes to be the truth, and I think it's, it's well-founded. Uh, and simply because he is not owned, he doesn't have to spin things in a way that keeps him em- employed. He's managed to uh, employ himself as an independent consultant and as an author um, he was born in 1949. He received his uh, bachelor's degree in economics uh, from Dartmouth College in 1971. Uh, he uh, received an MBA from Dartmouth, uh, Amos Tuck School of Business Administration in 1972, where he was named an Edward Tuck Scholar. During his career as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. For more than 25 years, John has been a private consulting economist out of necessity, he became a specialist in government economic reporting. Uh, he learned that virtually all economic stats quoted by the U.S. government are spun using optimistic assumptions that often bear little reality but make politicians look good and put money in the pockets of Wall Street. John writes the Shadow Government Statistics newsletter, and his work has been recognized 
by the mainstream media where he has been quoted in publications like the Times and the Investors Business Daily. Uh, John, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, thank you for having me, Jay. You know, I've learned to know you over the years, and I, I think probably more than 10 years ago, more like 15 years ago, you and I were in a, at a conference with Peter Grandich down in, uh, in New Jersey, uh, and I've followed your work ever since then. And, and uh, more recently, I know James Turk was writing about some of your work, and that's when I really started focusing on it again, realizing that, that you were providing some very, very valuable information. You know, this show is about trying to understand what is really going on so that we can protect ourselves and invest accordingly. So I really appreciate your work because I think you've been very, very helpful in that regard. I want to quote something from your website. In 1966, you say that in the middle of the Clinton economic miracle, the Kaiser Foundation conducted a survey of American public that purported to show how out of touch the electorate was with economic reality. Most Americans thought inflation and unemployment were much higher and economic growth much weaker than reported by the government. And the Washington Post bemoaned the economic ignorance of the public. The same results uh, would be found today, you say. Absolutely. You say, neither the Kaiser Foundation nor the Post understood that there was and still is good reason for the gap between the common perceptions and government reporting. Government data are biased in a politically correct directions and increasingly have diverged from common experience and reality since the mid-1980s. Inflation and unemployment reports are understated, while employment and other economic data are overstated deliberately, you say. Yes. So my question, I you know, I want to ask you uh, about these distortions. But first, let me ask you: Do you think we're still in a recession right now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, because we're hearing no, a lot of talk no, in the mainstream no about how we're out of it now. We're coming out of it, and you're going no, to see. Not a chance. We're we're in the worst downturn. Uh, let me just qualify this because uh, as you look at the uh, business cycles, let's say the last century or so. Uh, coming out of World War II, there was a shutdown of uh, war production. Uh, soldiers come home. Uh, big, there's a, there's a big, big overhaul in the, in the system. That's not considered a, a normal uh, business cycle. Yeah. But outside of that, what we're seeing right now uh, is the uh, weakest economy, uh, the longest uh, economic downturn. Uh, since the uh, first downleg of the Great Depression in uh, the early 30s. The, the, the Great Depression was a double-dip depression. Right. And uh, uh, the, the, the first dip lasted 48 months. We're up to uh, 20 months now. But prior to this, uh, since that first leg of the Great Depression, the, the longest uh, periods we had were uh, 16 months, and that was... Uh, uh, and uh, back in uh, the uh, early 80s and, mm -hmm. and also back in the mid-70s, uh, we've gone far beyond those. And again, any measure that you look at, uh, not only are you seeing that the, the, the pattern of growth is the, the lowest in uh, the history of the series. Most economic series were started uh, post-World War II, but you, you take those such as industrial production uh, that go back to 1919, uh, you're seeing the steepest annual uh, declines there again since outside of the uh, production shutdown after the end of World War, World War II, II. Uh, since the Great Depression. Right. Well, do you think we're we're destined for another double dipper here, uh, akin to the 1930s? We're, de we're, we're in a long-term multiple dip 
downturn. I don't think we're even uh, coming up for air to take another dip. Now we we, we are not recovering. Yeah, uh, this is going to be a very protracted, extraordinarily deep uh, recession. Deprived, I'll contend it's a depression, and I'll define that for you. Um, but it's um, let, let me let me let me define it for you. Yeah, define it. Tell, um, what, in ter- what is terms your of, uh, of depression, the, the peak to trough uh, contraction in the economy. Uh, that's that's what most people would look look at, look at it in terms of the the, the depth of a downturn. Uh, before World War II, all downturns were just generally referred to as depressions. Yeah. And and where you uh, uh, if you plotted uh, the level of economic activity on a graph, you'd see it would dip down and then it would come back up. Fairly quick lived things, though. No. I'm sorry. For the most part, fairly quick. They were short short duration. Well, not necessarily. I mean, no. you had the Great Depression. They they, they were no, tended I mean to be a lot deeper. Than what we've seen today, yeah. So I've seen post World War II, mm-hmm. uh, but the um, uh, after World War II, uh, in terms of naming the business cycle, using the word depression was something that wanted they, they wanted to avoid. They didn't want to evoke memories of the, of the Great Depression. So they started spinning things all the way back then by by using different words to well, try the, to create the, a different the, image. The, the down part of the depression was referred to as as a recession, and you had the recovery. Mm-hmm. So they, they just started using the term recession. Mm-hmm. Uh, some years back, I talked with the people at the Bureau of Economic Analysis. The National Bureau of Economic Research was actually the defining authority on whether or not the U.S. economy is in recession. Mm-hmm. What would constitute uh, a depression as most people look at, look at it today? Yes, someone what a depression is, they'll say, oh, it's a particularly severe recession. <clears throat> Recessions are contraction in inflation-adjusted economic activity. Mm-hmm. And um, so, very simply, what I found was were generally acceptable terms to people, but these are not formal definitions. But I feel you've got to define it if you're going to start calling something a depression. Right. Uh, a depression would indeed is a severe recession where the peak to trough contraction exceeds 10%. Mm-hmm. We haven't had one of those uh, since uh, before World War II. Mm-hmm. Great Depression would be a contraction in excess of 25%. Mm-hmm. We, we, we've had. Uh, one of those for sure, and, and maybe one back in the uh, uh, 18, uh, 1830s, mm-hmm. depending on how. They, it's tough to, to get good numbers on the, on the earlier right, time. Back that far. But um, what we're looking at now, in terms of peak to trough contraction, uh, you're already in depression levels for retail sales adjusted uh, um, for, for inflation, for yeah. uh, industrial production. We're at Great Depression levels in terms of housing, wow. uh, new orders for durable goods. And again, you, you, uh, where, where the people get all excited about, oh, my goodness, you know, we're coming out of recession. I, I wish we were. Mm-hmm. Um, but what gets hyped is the month-to-month change, mm. which usually is, is not statistically meaningful. It's, it's, it's seasonally adjusted. And in this extreme turmoil that we're seeing, those Seasonally, adjust, seasonally adjusted numbers just are not are, are not too meaningful. Now. A lot of volatility there, and and so what do you you need to look at year over year numbers, not only year over year but also the the level in terms of the year to year. We're seeing year to year declines that uh, are, are the historic lows for most series, or again the lowest since uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, but we, we've been dropping for so long now, even the the year to year. Starts to slow out and, 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 and slow down in terms of its decline and bottom out. Right. And if you look at you, there, there you have to look at the level. Is the level turning up? No, it's not turning up. 
I mean, you, you may see some. It, it, you, we're not dropping as fast as we were last year, right? But in terms of the housing numbers, we're, we're still seeing levels that haven't uh, haven't been seen since before World, World War II. Okay, John. Well, I'd like to get into some of these different different statistics that the government talks about. Um, unless unless you have more to say, I know you do have more to say about that. But I'd like to get to unemployment. Yeah. Uh, what do you figure the unemployment rate is? What's the government's unemployment rate right now? Well, right, right now. Uh, you have to. Uh, they, they publish six levels mm. of unemployment. Wow! The, the one that's popularly followed, they call U three unemployment level three, and that's the lowest, probably. Um, well, U one actually was the lowest, but U three was the popularly followed one, nine point four percent. Now, yes, the average uh, person, whether or not he or she is unemployed, they don't have to think too long to give you an answer. No, <laughs> they, they can tell you right up front, but. What, when you think you're unemployed, you may not necessarily meet the government's definition. Yeah. The, the government's broadest measure, which is called U6, right now is at 16.3%. And uh, what they include in that is a very important category called discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. A discouraged worker is someone who meets all the qualifications of, of being unemployed. Uh, they're out of work. They want a job. They're willing and able to work. The only thing that they're they're lacking is that they haven't looked for work in the last four weeks, mm. and the reason that they haven't uh, is because there are no jobs to be had yep. where they are. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, uh, discouraged workers, uh, if you reach the point that you haven't looked for work in the last twelve months, you disappear from all counting. But on that basis, you're at sixteen point three percent unemployment. If you, if you've been discouraged for more than a year. Um, and prior to 1994, again, this is the middle of the Clinton administration, uh, they defined discouraged workers in a way that it wasn't limited by, uh, by you know, a year's uh, artificial deadline. Oh, my goodness, you haven't, you, you haven't uh, looked for work in, uh, you know, for, for, for more than a year, therefore we're not counting you. Um, I still estimate... Uh, the long-term discouraged workers, and if you add them back in, uh, that puts you up around 20.6%. And that, that's about, I think, what you'd get if you did a simple survey of, of, of people, common experience. Are you employed or unemployed? Wow. That's, that's the type of answer you'd get. So and we're looking say, at numbers that aren't far from the Great Depression then now. Well, yes and no. <clears throat> um, keep in mind that the government didn't survey unemployment until 1940. Okay. The estimates of the Great Depression were guesstimated well after the fact. The official peak unemployment rate was for the average uh, year 1933, 25%. Um, and sure, we're, we're pretty close to that. But you had a different environment then. Back mm-hmm. in those days, roughly 27% of the population worked on farms. Right. You'd go visit your aunt on the farm and you'd help pick corn. You didn't get paid, but you mm-hmm. you, you were employed. You, you, you got food and mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever the case, whatever the case was, yeah. uh, today less than two percent of of the population works on farms. And uh, if you looked at the non-farm unemployment rate uh, peak, as estimated by the Social Security Administration, again this is all recreated well after the fact. Uh, the peak there was around thirty-four, thirty-five percent, also mm-hmm. in 1933. Mm-hmm. So that if you're looking at it in terms of uh, what I think would be comparable to what I have. And in today's environment, where we're not such a heavily farm-dependent society in terms of employment, yeah. that 
probably the 34, 35% would be what I'd compare against. Where we are right now in terms of, in terms of a, a 20, uh, 20.6% unemployment rate mm-hmm. is, uh, probably the, the worst. It, it's, it's at the trough of what was seen in the 1975 mm-hmm. recession, which again, post World War II is a bad one. Worst ever seen. So. Yes. I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're very close. Another month or two, you're going to be uh, seeing numbers that are, are Great Depression vintage. So, in other words, you, uh, I mean, you think we're still early on in this, in this downturn. The worst is still ahead of us. Right. So we could very easily get to where we were in the 30s, in your oh, opinion? Yes. Well, in fact, uh, uh, down the road a couple of years, mm-hmm. and, and possibly as early as next, you may be in what, what I'm calling a hyperinflationary mm-hmm. Great Depression. Mm-hmm. We're in a wanna... depression now. I want to get I want to get to that uh, hyperinflation issue. I want to ask you about inflation right now. The okay. government's numbers. What are the the official uh, producer price or pr- producer price and consumer price numbers right now? And what are what do you think the reality is? Well, the um, what, what what you see with the um, producer prices jumps all, all over the place. It's 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 not. Heavily played with that. I don't think it's yeah. The okay, most well, how about it's randomly volatile? The, the, the one that uh, is closely followed is uh, what they call the CPIU. Mm-hmm. Um, the Consumer Price Index, uh, all urban consumers. Mm-hmm. They have another version, which is the CPIW, which is for urban wage earners. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to get too technical there, but if you're on Social Security, the CPIW is what your Social, social Security checks are adjusted okay. by. And that's what created a lot of the problem here. Is the whole concept of the CPI, and where it came into popular use with the automotive contracts, the automotive contracts as a way of, of adjusting paychecks, was that with a CPI you could take a simple basket of take a basket of goods and be a constant basket of goods. And I'm going to use a very simple uh, expo- uh, example here. But uh, for example, uh, uh, one year you might you'd measure, let's say, what a, a pound of beef cost. A loaf of bread, a gallon of milk, a gallon of gas. Mm-hmm. Um, then you'd measure those same items the next year, and however much the cost had changed, uh, that would have been the uh, rate of inflation that you had to beat in order to maintain a uh, constant standard of living. Mm-hmm. The concept, the, the the key here, what what is being uh, obfuscated by our friends in Washington, is the concept of a constant standard of living. For an investor, um, if you're looking uh, to, to, to get an interest uh, rate return or retain or return on your stocks, whatever it is, you're looking to to, to, to beat inflation. Sure. If, if you have uh, um, if your income is being adjusted by the CPI or the, 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 the consumer price index, you're expecting that the adjustment there is what you need to maintain a constant standard of living. Right. Well, along came Mr. Greenspan and and uh, Mr. Boskin, who at the time was uh, they, uh, uh, of course, Greenspan was a Fed chairman, and, and Boskin was uh, a head of uh, the first President Bush's Council, Council of Economic Advisors. Mm-hmm. And what they uh, started talking about was how the consumer price index really overstated inflation. Uh-huh. And um, you just ask them why. Their, their explanation was, well, you know, if hamburger goes up in price, you need um, steak. I mean, excuse me, if steak goes up in price, people will tend to buy more hamburger. Therefore, you should use, you should substitute the yeah. hamburger for the steak. Yeah. Your cost of living doesn't increase that much. And, it, you know, it's 
it's a more accurate reflection of their cost of living. Mm. It depends depends what you're looking at in terms of cost of living. Sure. If you're talking cost of survival, that's what they're measuring. But if you're looking at what's needed to maintain a constant standard of living, for me, a steak is a lot different than hamburger. And, and I, I want to maintain my in, income level so I can continue buying steak. Sure. Um, so that that <clears throat> that's where they started to to, to shift the concept. And the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does not like my comments. They put out a paper uh, explaining you know, why they, well, they, they never uh, talked about uh, hamburger, hamburger and steak, and they don't measure that. Yeah. But that's the not concept. Accurate. I've, 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 I've put an answer to that. Uh, in fact, in the Boskin Commission report, they used uh, chicken, uh, chicken and steak, but Alan Greenspan used uh, hamburger steak. All this was done and forced upon the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Right. I mean, they're effectively an innocent political party in this. Um, but the idea for doing this was to reduce the cost of living adjustments, uh, particularly for Social Security, because <clears throat> they could do so. They could they could help to reduce the um, federal deficit without anyone in Washington having having to take the politically impossible vote of voting against Social Security. Right. Well, John, let me just, cause, because of time considerations here, but let me ask you, so the CPI, the official numbers that the government's coming out with, the one they quote yep. all the time now, has actually been negative, has it not? They're showing some deflation. No, they're they're showing the right now a 2.1% year-over-year uh, contraction in, in inflation, which is formal deflation uh, uh, per the uh, CPIU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would estimate that if, if you looked at the uh, methodologies in place as of 1980, You'd be seeing inflation of somewhat over four percent. If you look at the methodologies in place as of 1990, you'd still be looking at something uh, uh, around a little over one percent. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the collapse in oil prices did have a significant impact here. Right. But so, so but that's we're, we're, that quick the point social security checks are going to be reduced the, as a result of this. All the people on social security not going to not not going to get a, an increase this year. That that may well be the case, despite the fact that. You know they're having more money taken out of taken out of their checks because the government's cost of living is going up. Well, um, had these changes not been made in the 1990s, it shifted the the concept away from uh, constant standard of living measure to to a substitution bias, which gives you lower CPI. Okay. Social Security checks today would be about double what they are. Wow, that's incredible. So uh, people have had their pockets picked without without having a, a clue about it. Absolutely. John, we, we're coming up on a break here. I want to get back and ask you a little bit about GDP, and then I want to hear uh, what you have to say about hyperinflation. So uh, we're going to go to break now, and we'll be uh, we'll be right back with John with John Williams uh, for more on the inflation uh, hyperinflation concerns that John has. We'll be right back. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to 
know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. As regular listeners to this show know, I am very bullish on gold and especially gold mining stocks. One of my favorite gold mining companies is Metanor Resources, traded Toronto and the Pink Sheets. This is a new gold producer. It is using cash flows from its Berry Mine in Quebec to finance growth of that mine and to put the world-famous Quebec Bachelor Lake Mine back into production. This stock has been recommended by my newsletter because I do believe it holds extraordinary upside price potential with relatively low levels of risk. Visit Metanor's website at metanor.ca or subscribe to my newsletter for more information. For asset security in uncertain times, gold has always been the investment of choice. One of the best ways to profit from gold investing is to buy shares in companies that are exploring and developing gold deposits. Coral Gold is a gold exploration and development company with over 2.3 million drill-indicated ounces of gold. Coral Gold's low market cap allows investors to participate with leverage in a rising gold market. Coral Gold has a long track record of success in Nevada, dating back over 25 years. Visit Coral Gold on the web today at CoralGold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and we're back here with John Williams, independent economist John Williams. And, John, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, inflation. You had indicated that the government's numbers now are uh, CP, uh, CPI, you, I think you said, are, are negative 2.1, but in fact, if they were using the same yardstick as they used in 1980, it would be over 4%. Over now, 5. I'm sorry? Over 5. Over 5% now. Yeah. So that's quite a difference, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, now, the GDP numbers, of course, are 
are uh, adjusted for inflation. So if we have a negative number, if the government's using a negative number, then it inflates the uh, GDP. Is that right? Well, it's um, what, what they use in the GDP is not exactly the same thing as the CPI. The CPI is just consumer spending. Okay. You have a lot of factors in CPI, such as trade and mm-hmm. and, and government spending. <clears throat> but yeah, you know, the, the key is that if um, the, the way the GDP growth gets reported, it's adjusted inflation for inflation. So if they're underestimating inflation, uh, they're overestimating the growth. Right. And, so that's what they're doing. Is that, significant, that then maybe allows uh, them to say we're coming out of this recession now. They start looking at those kind of numbers. Well, the, the quarterly numbers are absolutely worthless. They're raised to the fourth power. Uh, it's nonsense. It's the, it's the most worthless series they have. It's very heavily politically manipulated. But if you look at the year-to-year change, you're down 3.9%, and you haven't seen that before in the GDP, GDP series on a quarterly basis, again, outside of the shutdown after World War II. It is the deepest downturn and this was all the with all the government gimmicks in those numbers since the uh the first leg of the great depression let me understand what you just said you said the gdp is down 3.9% now year over year year over year and that those are the government's numbers those are government's numbers now what would your numbers be oh i've, you... I've got it a couple of percentage points uh lower than that so we would be negative 5 or 6% uh, negative six percent, something like that, right now. Yeah, you're, you're, you're over. I mean, we've been in a. This is uh, the the, the uh, uh, your your depression, your your recessions here generally are, are deeper and more protracted than is reported by the government. Uh, and and in fact, it's gotten so bad with the reporting that the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, doesn't uh, rely on the. Uh, uh, the, the uh, GDP numbers anymore to call a recession. They call it a recession with po- nothing but positive growth being reported by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Wow. I, I don't know anyone who seriously believes those numbers. Well, John, let me ask you this now. You are a proponent of hyperinflation. You believe that's that's what's in our future. You wrote a very, very excellent special report last year, I believe, on hyperinflation. I have a copy of here in my office. If we have this kind of weakness in the economy, how do we get to hyperinflation? Well, you do get uh, inflation sometimes without without uh, strong economic demand, and we saw it last year. We're beginning to see it now. Uh, Mr. Bernanke was uh, has been trying to debase the dollar to avoid uh, the uh, year-over-year deflation that we're seeing in the uh, in, in, in the CPI, and in the process of debasing the dollar, he started to trigger selling of of, of the dollar in, in the foreign exchange markets. The weaker the dollar gets, and we're, we, we have a tremendous sell-off ahead of us here. I'm not giving any timing on it. Yeah. I'm just saying the big picture, dollar is going to, going to plummet. Uh, the weaker the dollar gets, the higher oil gets. You're talking about the dollar vis-a-vis other currencies. Yes, vis-a-vis the, 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 the euro, the Swiss franc, yeah. Canadian dollar. Uh, going to get a lot weaker. Uh, that's the way the markets balance it out. So that what, what you're seeing in the higher oil prices right now is largely due to weakness in the dollar. It's not due to strong demand for oil, we, and we didn't have that last year. But that, in turn, is uh, already starting to trigger some signs of inflation that are not driven by strong economic demand. Oh, I see. But when I talk about hyperinflation, I'm talking about something where the dollar becomes absolutely worthless. There, there are all sorts of numbers out there. I mean, all sorts of definitions. Mine, very simply, is when the largest uh, currency in circulation before the inflation uh, in this case, a $100 bill becomes worth more as functional toilet paper. Mm-hmm. In this currency, you have a hyperinflation. This is Weimar Republic-type uh, inflation. 
Oh, now, this was in place. It's, it's, it's a virtual guarantee that we're going to have this because the government has bankrupted itself. Uh, before the current crisis, uh, if you look at the government's financial statements, as they publish uh, once a year based on generally accepted accounting principles and you account for uh, the, the uh, annual change in the uh, net present value of the unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare, last year they reported a deficit of $5.1 trillion. That's a trillion. That's ten, more than tenfold what they were showing in the official number. This year, that's going to be about $9 trillion. We have total, total uh, uh, debts and obligations right now that, I mean, as of the end of September, will be up to $75 trillion. That's, that's uh, f- five times the level of GDP. It's more than the global GDP. There's no way we can possibly pay that off. So there's it, no way that other countries are, are debasing their currency at the same rate that we are. No one is doing it like we are. Nothing, I mean, I mean there, there the, other countries are doing it, but not nearly as rapidly. Not, not, no, this, we're, this is a problem that's largely limited to the U.S. That's one, one, one reason you're going to see and are beginning to see increasing uh, selling pressure on, on, on the dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if let's say you wanted to, to bring this under in, in balance, you wanted to balance that deficit, you could take 100% of everyone's uh, income, 100% of corporate profits, you'd still be in deficit. Wow. It, and and if, you, if you wanted to do it from the standpoint of slashing uh, spending, you have to slash Social Security and Medicare, and there's no political will to do that. I'm talking severe slashing. I, I, I view it as hopeless. And what the government ends up doing here, as most governments do when they, they're set in such a circumstance where they've been, been paying for the future with, with the are their, their children paying for the current uh, political promises with a, their children's uh, future income uh, is that they, they end up printing very cheap dollars and inflate their way out of it. We have a hyperinflation. Now, that's the way we were before the current crisis. Mr. Bernanke in the last year has uh, flooded the system with liquidity. The monetary base, uh, which is the tool that the Fed usually uh, uses to control money supply, which ultimately drives inflation, is up over 100% year over year. Uh, I mean, this is, this, is, this is unprecedented. Now, that has not flowed through to the broader money supply measures, uh, but very simply because uh, uh, the, the banks aren't lending it out into, in, in, into the normal stream of commerce. They're depositing it with the Fed as excess reserves and are earning a little bit of interest with, with the Fed. Right. The, the, the liquidity crisis, the, the, the systemic solvency crisis, is not getting better. It's, it's worse. I mean, we're... Again, the worst is ahead of us there. The worst is ahead of us with, with, with the economic crisis. We're, we're not seeing any recovery here. So, John, what we're seeing here, though, is, is very much like the 30s. The banks won't lend. The borrowers won't borrow either because they're not able, and those that are able don't want to borrow because yep. they don't see any economic prospects for doing so. Prices, uh, some prices are falling, I believe, yet still, although now maybe they're, they're heading back up. Um, what... What gets this to change? I mean, when does well, this velocity of the, money change? When do the, people the, 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 the difference, very simply, is that uh, the government was in bankrupt back then. It okay, is, and it is we, today. And we didn't have a weak currency then. Well, and nor a weak currency, nor did we have a, a, a trade deficit, and you can go on down the line. Yeah. But, but the, the, the situation is this. Um, with all the stimulus that we've seen so far, they're going to they're come up with more stimulus packages. Yes. You're not going to... You're not. You're going to be seeing people realizing that this economy has not has not turned. Uh, as that stimulus gets paid for, as all the spending that's now being uh, uh, channeled through the system uh, goes goes into play, the treasury has to borrow it. 
And and what's happening is no one really wants to lend it to the Treasury, particularly the big foreign investor. I mean, there may be some arm twisting and, and special deals made, but what happens here is the Fed has to step in as a buyer of last resort for the for the Treasury debt, as they do so, as they monetize that. That does put the cash into the system. It, it, uh, I mean, instead of... If, if the Treasury borrows it from the public, it pulls the cash out, and then they send the ba- cash uh, back in, and it, do- it doesn't have any effect on the money supply. But when the Treasury pulls the cash out of a creation by the Fed and then puts it back out into the system, that creates the money supply. And that's what you're going to be seeing in, in the months ahead. And, and as that hits, uh, uh, I would put the risk of uh, hyperinflation the next year as, as quite high. In, in 2010? Uh, 2010. Uh, I mean, my general outlook is uh, a virtual certainty by 2014, but you could, uh, this next year is particularly uh, of particular risk. And what you have to watch out for is a uh, very heavy dumping of the dollar, a movement by the foreign central banks to get out of treasuries and, and the dollar. That'll happen. You'll see the gold market reflected. You'll see the dollar plummet. And that's, that's, that, when you see that, uh, hang on to your hat. Well, this is very interesting what you're saying, John. I know that uh, we had Richard Mayberry on our show, and he was talking about he believes that, for example, the Chinese, our biggest creditor mm-hmm. nation, is uh, has been making deals with foreign countries to pay off uh, for fixed assets that they're buying from in different countries with long-term dollar commitments. That is, they'll pay with worthless currency, and that's the way they're getting out of their dollar right now. Well, they're, that they're, sense? The, 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 no one has ever claimed the Chinese were stupid. Yeah, exactly. They, they know exactly what's happening. Yep, they're they're very much aware, and they're trying to warn us too. They're trying to say, look, you know, we're we're, we're very unhappy about this, but we don't seem to pay any attention, do we? Well, let me put it this way: all the central banks know what's happening. No one wants to hold the dollars. No one wants to be the last out of it, though. No, the, no, no one wants to start it, but they don't want to be the last out. Okay, yeah, just watch. We're beginning to see movement in that direction. John, do you think we're going to see a crash in the in the long term treasury market here soon? Uh, yeah, well, or or will Bernanke yeah, keep buying? I mean, it? I'm, I'm not into market timing. Yeah, I mean, long term yields are going to spike. My, my, my goodness, if I'm right in the hyperinflation. Yeah, I mean, you, the the value of the dollar drops to zero. Gold gold goes to 100 million dollars an ounce. Uh, treasury yields are, you know, God help us. 20, 20 digits, who knows? God help I mean, it's, John, it's, it's not a happy circumstance. John, we're just about out of time here. We've only got about a minute or so, and I have to make some closing comments. I want to thank you so much for your insights, and we've got to have you back sometime to, to, to talk more about this stuff because this is so essential. But before we uh, say goodbye, could you just give our listeners your website so people can check out your service? Sure. My, my website is shadowstats.com. Uh, we have a lot of information available to the public, including the hyperinflation report written back last April. The basic story uh, uh, stands the, uh, the time horizons moving in closer, um, but the, the basic story is there. Uh, we're also very happy to pick up subscribers to the current newsletter if they're if anyone's interested. We have our archives open for anything that's written more than six months well, back. You can see our alternate measures on. Uh, on, on the uh, GDP, inflation, and such, so that's all plotted. So. Yes, I, I know, John, and I can attest to that. In fact, I just wrote a check uh, for my next annual subscription, and it is really worth the, the $175, I believe it is, that, that it costs, of course, as, as an editor of a newsletter. It, it is uh, very, very essential for me to have this to pass on to, to investors uh, to subscribers. But uh, thanks again, John, for your, for your words of wisdom and your insight and for speaking the truth, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's what we need 
Americans and everybody needs the truth in order to be able to uh, to plan their futures. I mean, if you're operating on on a false premises, your your chance of success is not very good. So thank you very much, John, for for being with us today, and I hope we can have you back real soon again. You sure can, and thank you very much for having me on your show, Jay. Thank you, John. Well, we're just about to close here. We've got 30 seconds left, folks. I just want to say uh, I believe that we're heading for some very, very difficult times. Uh, my view is that we're heading for some more deflation, at least deflation of the financial markets yet, before we see John's scenario unfold. I do think that the government has the wherewithal, as Ron Paul told us, to channel money into the sector, into the private se- into the individual's uh, pockets, so they'll spend, spend, spend. And, and uh, John gave us the reason why the dollar is going to crash. Uh, there's so many dollars being created, they have no chance, really, of, of retaining any value. Uh, we're just, uh, as I say, we're out of time. Uh, next week, we'll have Chen back. Roger Wiegand got squeezed this time because John Williams had so much to say. We'll have him back next week as well. I also have Lou Skatigna. He's going to be my special guest next week. He is a financial planner and author. He'll have a, a lot of very interesting things to say. Barry Ritholtz is coming down the road uh, sometime in the near future. Robert Prechter has agreed to come on with us, too, to be a special guest sometime in the near future. I want to thank my uh, executive producer, Tacey Trump, for her help, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, and Travis Ortwin, who is uh, my engineer. Uh, with their help, uh, it's able to, I'm able to get this uh, show out, even though barely as I stumble here, running out of time. Thank you very much. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.